In any case, Brophy was incensed. He got into his car and followed the captain to his engagement, only to learn it was a cocktail party. The father of the dead ensign sat in his car and seethed. How dare McVeigh be so cavalier when Brophy's son, the light of his life, was dead? Brophy, a wealthy advertising executive, was an important, well-connected man with seats on several charitable boards and government councils. He knew that legally, McVeigh was on the verge of destruction. Over the next several weeks, Brophy would use all his influence, contacting Forrestal and even President Truman, to ensure that destruction was complete. Although it may have appeared so to Brophy, McVeigh was not avoiding the difficult task of meeting with family members. In October 1945, Catherine Moore took a train to Washington, D.C. Captain McVeigh had asked to see her. For most Americans, V.J. Day had been a day of celebration. For her, it marked the dawn of widowhood. Like treasures drawn from a hope chest, she found herself pulling out her memories, turning them this way and that. Those precious spring months in 1943 and Christmas the same year. That week in April of 1944, along with the following November. Now she had a new memory to add. The two months at Mare Island before Indy's last voyage. Catherine's heart ached. Five sweet parcels of time. Would they be enough to sustain her? After the train deposited her in Washington, Catherine sought out McVeigh, who regarded her sadly. Mary is an orphan now, he said of Casey Moore's daughter. It was true. Mary's mother had abandoned her years earlier, and now her adoring father was gone forever. Mary was devastated and literally clung to the last photograph of her father. In it, Casey looked down at her, night-like in dress whites, and Mary gazed back up with a loving smile. As for Catherine, she had married Casey for Casey, a newspaperman, dashing and independent, with his own convertible sports car. Catherine had hoped to travel with him, see the world. Instead, she was a widow left to raise a daughter not her own. McVeigh then told Catherine of his own grief. Every day of my life, I will see the faces of the men I lost and realize anew that I lost a $40 million ship that others had commanded successfully and safely. I will probably live a long, long time as punishment, McVeigh said. He was wrong about that. 6. After a week's delay, Secretary Forrestal concurred with King's recommendation for what would be called a supplemental investigation. This investigation was assigned to the Naval Inspector General, Admiral Charles P. Snyder, one of the few flag officers who had been around even longer than King. Snyder was no lawyer. Born in West Virginia, he graduated from the Naval Academy in 1900 a year ahead of King, and received his commission as an ensign in 1902. During World War I, he commanded the Pacific Fleet flagship USS Oregon, as well as a cruiser and a transport. He then climbed through a series of prestigious postings, including president of the Naval War College and then commander of battleships 
Battle Force, second in command of the U.S. fleet. The supplemental investigation of the sinking of Indianapolis convened on Wednesday, October 31st at 11 a.m. in Snyder's D.C. offices. Assistant Inspector General Captain Charles E. Coney and Commander Thomas Van Meter would interview a total of 48 witnesses. Their mandate was narrow, to probe the routing chosen for Indianapolis, considerations regarding escorts, and the receipt of Indy's departure message by Rear Admiral McCormick's communications staff. Coney was a veteran of much tougher duty than this. As former commander of MacArthur's flagship, the light cruiser Nashville, he'd carried the general into many battles and was in command in October 1944, when MacArthur landed in Leyte, fulfilling his most famous promise, I shall return. Now in Snyder's offices, Coney interrogated his first witness, Captain William Smedberg, combat intelligence officer working for Admiral King. Coney asked Smedberg just six questions before learning of the chart Smedberg's office had prepared in early July, the one showing the position of the Taman Group submarines. We knew there were at least four Japanese submarines operating in the general area between the Japanese islands, the Marianas, and the Palau Group and the Philippines, Smedberg said. We had the positions of those submarines rather closely estimated, we think. One of our estimated positions was so close that the point which was the center of our estimated patrol station was within a very few miles of the position where the D.E. Underhill was sunk on the 24th of July. 1945. Coney replied, I note from your chart that the Japanese submarine I-58 is apparently the one which was closest in proximity to the point where the Indianapolis was eventually sunk. Is that correct? That is a position that we have assigned to I-58 based on information that we had at the time. We have learned that the submarine I-58 reported to her commander that she sank a ship on the 29th of July. We don't know from her report what ship she sank. Over the next three weeks, Coney and Van Meter interviewed a range of witnesses, including Commander E.S. Goodwin, operations officer for the Chief of Naval Communications, and Indianapolis officers Blum, McKissick, Wollston, and Haynes. A number of enlisted men also testified during this period, including Chief Gunner Harrison. Coney and Van Meter drilled hard and deep, their questions at turns probing and challenging. During the investigation, information emerged that the U.S. Coast Guard vessel Bib and a Navy cargo ship, Hyperion, received fragmentary distress signals on the night Indy sank, and these reports were made part of the investigation. As the inquiry proceeded, Van Meter sent Snyder, the Inspector General, periodic updates which Snyder then assimilated into progress reports for Admiral King. Both Van Meter's and Snyder's prose and conclusions were unflinching. Neither man hesitated to report facts that might not bode well for the Navy. On November 8th, Personnel Chief Admiral Denfeld wrote to Forrestal, In light of emerging testimony, he recommended that McVeigh's court-martial be delayed until the supplemental investigation was complete. On November 9th, in his own memo to Forrestal, Admiral King concurred. The calendar then rolled forward one day, and in that 24 hours, 
everything changed. On November 10th, Snyder received a memo from Van Meter. By then, 35 Indianapolis survivors had been questioned, including eight officers. Their testimony, Van Meter wrote to Snyder, made it necessary to call as witnesses officers attached to the headquarters of the Commander Chief Pacific Fleet, officers on the staff of the Commander Naval Base Guam, on the staff of the Commander Naval Base Leyte, on the staff of the Commander Philippine Sea Frontier, and possibly from the staff of the Commander Marianas. It now also seems possible that Rear Admiral Ohlendorf might be required to report before this investigation, and certainly Rear Admiral McCormick will be interrogated. Van Meter expected those interrogations would not be completed until sometime during the first half of December. McVeigh himself had not been interviewed, Van Meter wrote. That interview was to take place on the coming Wednesday, November 14th. Upon receiving Van Meter's memo, Snyder wrote immediately to King. Testimony from Captain Smedberg and officers of the Navy Intelligence Section indicates a failure in the naval organization in Guam and Leyte to use resources and information at their disposal. Snyder ticked off examples. Guam failed to provide escort, although they had information of active submarine operations in the area to be traversed. Guam failed to take action on a fleet radio unit Pacific intelligence coup, which indicated a Japanese submarine had sunk a vessel in the vicinity in which the Indianapolis was known to be. At Leyte, the Philippine Sea Frontier Organization failed to keep track of the Indianapolis and take action when that vessel failed to appear after a scheduled time, even though it was known to them through Fleet Radio Unit Pacific activities and other intelligence reports that submarines were operating in the area where the Indianapolis was, and that a report of a sinking had been made by a Japanese submarine. It is unknown whether King already had the information that Lady knew of a sinking. Snyder learned of this from Van Meter on November 2nd. Within a half hour of the recorded time of Indy sinking, the skipper of the Japanese submarine, I-58, Snyder wrote, which was known to be operating in the general area through which Indianapolis was then passing, sent a message to his headquarters that he had sunk an American warship. Under questioning, Smedberg had told Van Meter that he introduced into the intelligence machinery a paraphrased copy of the dispatch. From Captain Sub I-58, attacked and sunk one, two unrecovered groups. Sinking confirmed. Obtained three torpedo hits. Position unrecovered grid. Translated, this meant that the magicians had not recovered or intercepted information on the type of ship sunk or its location. Nevertheless, Van Meter wrote to Snyder, since information of this importance is immediately transmitted by combat intelligence to the commander of the area in which the occurrence took place, it became apparent that if the customary procedure was followed in this case, this important intelligence should have been passed to sink pack for further investigation. Following up on this testimony, Van Meter visited Commander Goodwin at the Combat Intelligence Center on Massachusetts Avenue. 
Goodwin consulted the record and provided Van Meter with a timeline of how I-58's intercepted message was tracked. After it was first received, it was immediately put into the mill for processing. After a check translation to ensure that it had been decrypted and properly translated from Japanese, it was delivered to Smedberg in combat intelligence to Commander 7th Fleet and to at least two other international stations. Goodwin's info made clear to Van Meter that Nimitz's intelligence staff had the information of a reported sinking by July 30th at 4.46 p.m. local time in the area where the ship went down. At this time, the men of the Indianapolis had been in the water for less than one day. About ten hours later, news that a sinking had occurred reached the offices of Admiral King. That occurred the day Indy was supposed to arrive in Lady, July 31st, two days before rescue began. It is unclear whether King himself received this intelligence. In Van Meter's opinion, these revelations threw new light on the matter of the delay in making the search for the survivors of the Indianapolis, which seems to involve deeply the headquarters of the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet. In plain English, Nimitz's combat intelligence staff, as well as King's own, had clues that Indianapolis was down within hours of the event. Though critical information was missing, the type of vessel and its location, it was no great stretch to check on the welfare of ships passing through the area where I-58 was known to be. In his November 10th memo to King, Inspector General Snyder passed along Van Meter's assessment of the additional witnesses he felt it necessary to call. It now appears to be necessary to interrogate a number of officers, including some of considerable seniority, as to why action was not taken on certain information, which apparently was in their possession relative to the non-arrival of the Indianapolis in Leyte and the failure of the organizations under their command to take appropriate action in the case. Someone, Snyder, or Van Meter perhaps, created a chart in pencil showing just how high up the food chain these interrogations would go. At Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral McCormick and Commodore E. E. Stone, Nimitz's Assistant Chief of Staff for Communications. At Guam, Vice Admiral Murray, commander of the Marianas, who had sat in judgment at the Court of Inquiry in Guam. At Leyte, then-acting Philippine Sea Frontier Commander Commodore Norman Gillette. At San Diego, Rear Admiral Ollendorf and Commodore Carter, who had told McVeigh that all was quiet in the Philippine Sea. At Washington, Nimitz's Chief of Staff, the well-respected Vice Admiral Sock McMorris and Nimitz's combat intelligence officer, Captain Edwin Layton. It is unclear whether Admiral King saw this penciled chart, but with Snyder's enumeration of failures, he could have created his own. What is clear is that on the same day that King received Snyder's memo, he revised his earlier opinion and dashed off a handwritten note to Snyder. Comment on the feasibility of bringing C.O. Indianapolis to trial now. 7. For decades, 
Historians would wonder why King reversed himself. Perhaps families of the lost, such as the influential Brophies, brought pressure, wanting McVeigh to be held accountable. But King was not known as a man to bow to pressure. In fact, when pushed, King pushed back, harder. Also, he had already made the decision to court-martial McVeigh. Historians would entertain a second possibility. As a young officer, King was reprimanded by McVeigh's father while serving under him in the Asiatic fleet. Some, including old Admiral McVeigh himself, wondered whether King was seizing the chance to settle an old score. He was known to be vindictive. But if motivated by vendetta, why order additional investigation into the sinking of Indianapolis? The Guam Court of Inquiry had delivered to King any warrant he might have needed to provide cover for revenge. In ordering the supplemental investigation, which would rove far and deep, King seemed genuinely to be trying to get to the truth. Snyder replied to King's one-line note the same day. He believed, he wrote, that McVeigh wished to have the court-martial delayed because he felt that the Navy's investigation would reveal information in his interest and additional facts favorable to his case. Nevertheless, Snyder added, should you desire to bring Captain McVeigh to trial before my investigation is completed, it is, in my opinion, entirely feasible to do so. Snyder suggested that a summary of the case completed to date could be prepared, together with a list of witnesses still to be interrogated, along with a brief explanation of the reason for calling them. These could be submitted to Admiral Denfeld. Any outstanding witnesses could then be called by either the prosecution or the defense during the court-martial. It is impossible to know what additional information King received, whether by phone or personal meeting, the day he reversed himself. But Snyder's word that day on timing seems relevant. Van Meter would probably not finish interrogating the senior officers on the penciled list until sometime during the first half of December. Those officers had belonged to the same small club for decades, and King belonged to it too. Before World War II, the United States Navy was a small, insular organization, chummy and even a bit decrepit. Although families moved often, they tended to sail in and out of one another's orbits through common postings at the major ports or on staff duty in Washington. Annapolis was the primary source of commissioning, and most academy grads made the Navy a career. Most officers knew most other officers, to one degree or another, and they eventually served with one another, too. Their families also knew each other. Their children attended school together and grew up romping in the backyards of officers' country at naval installations around the world. As one historian wrote, they formed a close, intimate community with common interests and enduring friendships. The men at whose feet Snyder had laid potential culpability read like a who's who of that intimate community. Charles Sock McMorris had been a distinguished cruiser commander at Guadalcanal. In 1943, King bumped aside an underperforming admiral in charge of cruiser destroyers and subbed in McMorris, who had just received his flag. Later, McMorris relieved Spruance as Nimitz's chief of staff. 
He was there at the reorganization of Pacific Fleet Forces into the 3rd, 5th, and 7th Fleets under Spruance in August 1943. At Guadalcanal, McMorris served under George Murray, commander of Task Force 17. Murray, a consummate gentleman with a near spotless record, was Naval Aviator No. 22, an instrumental in the emergence of carrier air. Both he and King were in the same 1927 class, as it were, of carrier air leadership that burst onto the scene after Congress authorized its formation in 1926. Murray commanded the carrier USS Enterprise during key Pacific battles. A year before Indy sank, King hand-selected him as Commander Air Forces Pacific. Murray had relinquished that post only weeks before he assumed command of the Marianas, where he was serving when Indy sank. Jesse B. Oldendorf, commander of Task Force 95, was a battleship commander of the old school, who had also been a key commander at Guadalcanal and Saipan. Oldendorf assisted in the merging of the battleship squadrons and the new carrier air wings, taking the fleet into a new age. He fought his ships at the Marshalls, Palau, the Marianas, and Leyte, and he was wounded at the Battle of Okinawa. Lind McCormick and George Murray were in the same academy class, 1911. In 1941, McCormick was serving as assistant war plans officer under Admiral Husband Kimmel when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Nimitz retained McCormick on staff, where he served as war plans officer for key battles, including Guadalcanal. From October 1943 to March 1945, he served on King's staff as assistant chief of naval operations for logistics and plans and accompanied King to the Second Yalta Conference, preparatory to ending the war. These men, charted on the penciled witness list, had remade the Navy in their own image. They were the metalsmiths of a new global sea power, hammering out fresh strategies and tactics, deploying the largest fleet in history to win the worst war in history against arguably the most brutal and cunning enemy in history. Indeed, they would be celebrated as naval heroes for generations to come. Murray and Oldendorf were so highly regarded that they had personally accepted the Japanese surrender. Just four weeks earlier, New York City had honored Nimitz with a ticker tape parade that led up Broadway from Battery Park to City Hall, where he was greeted by Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia and addressed the crowd from a stage built to resemble the bow of a ship. Four million people, turned out. Now, in the afterglow of victory, Nimitz's chief of staff and other leading lights of the Pacific War would be dragged out in open court to testify about the failures Snyder had enumerated. Failures that had led to the death of nearly 900 men on the eve of victory, and more than a thousand if you tallied Underhill under similar intel failures. Unless the court-martial were to take place before the admirals could testify in the supplemental investigation. By bringing McVeigh to trial immediately, King could ensure that the admiral's testimony, not slated for completion until mid-December, would never reach the public ear. In addition, 
he could prevent the introduction of potentially mitigating and even exonerating testimony, improving the odds of a guilty verdict. Whether either of these was King's aim remains unclear, but by pushing the court-martial ahead, he would achieve both. Already, drumbeats signaling high-level failures were beginning to emerge in the press. Though the war was over, syndicated columnist Bill Cunningham had been in receipt of some troubling letters from service members around the world. Some asked for help. Others cited dangers and injustices. Something ought to be done, Cunningham wrote, and I've decided to do, at least, something. What he had decided to do was turn his nationally syndicated column, Cunningham's Comment, into a homeland version of the celebrated B-bag feature in the military newspaper Stars and Stripes. The B-bag published anonymous letters to the editor in which enlisted troops could get gripes off their chests without fear of retribution. Though operated from inside the War Department, Stars and Stripes was editorially independent and had no bigger supporter throughout the war than General Eisenhower himself. The B-bag earned troops' trust by publishing items like a fall 1944 letter from a soldier who asked how it was that though the European theater was in the middle of a supply crisis, a shipment of 5,000 cases of whiskey had somehow made it to officers' messes throughout the continent. The very first time Cunningham decided to emulate the B-bag was the same day King reversed himself. In his November 10th column, Cunningham mentioned two cases. The first concerned a Marine unit in post-bomb Nagasaki that was quartered in a ramshackle building with a surplus of rats and lice, but no fresh food. The second he called Case of Cruiser. Case number two concerns the loss of the USS Indianapolis and the charge that a major Navy disaster and a piece of major Navy criminal negligence was deliberately covered by withholding the announcement until it could be blanketed by the headlines of VJ Day, Cunningham wrote. Recounting Indy's no-escort sail into submarine waters, he continued, When she failed to rendezvous with a DE off the Philippines or make contact with an anti-aircraft plane on the appointed morning, nothing was done, and evidently shoulders were shrugged. Who and where is the officer or bureau responsible for that? And what action was taken? None. At this date, the public knew little of any failures on high with respect to Indianapolis. Cunningham received this complaint from a crew member of one of the rescue vessels. He had also heard from the mother of a young officer who survived for days in the water, one of those who died the afternoon of August 2nd, after rescue was finally underway. How could she draw any comfort from her son's sacrifice, the mother wrote, when his life and those of hundreds of men around him could have been saved if the Navy had been alert? Those agonizing hours my child suffered will not let me rest. The day Cunningham's first B-bag column ran, Forrestal called his special assistant, Edward Hidalgo, into his office. Wagging his finger at Hidalgo, Forrestal said, Eddie, I've been reading about the McVeigh case in the papers. We don't need that kind of publicity. Do whatever you can to put an end to it. Find out the truth. Get rid of this sensationalism. First thing on Monday, November 12th, 
Forrestal walked into his office to find King's original note, agreeing to the delay of McVeigh's trial. By day's end, though, King and Forrestal had conferred. There would be no record of their conversation, only of the result, another handwritten memo by King. 12 November, 45. The Secretary directs that General Court Martial of C.O. Indianapolis be proceeded with at once. 8. November 1945. Washington Navy Yard, Washington, D.C. On November 21st, Captain Thomas J. Ryan signed a copy of the order convening McVeigh's court-martial and naming him as judge advocate or prosecutor. The trouble was, the Navy had not yet been able to decide on charges. Still, Ryan reported to the office of the Judge Advocate General, Rear Admiral O.S. Colclough, and began to review materials in the case. Ryan knew McVeigh, who had been two years ahead of him at the Academy. Afterward, Ryan was posted in Japan when, on September 1, 1923, the worst earthquake ever to hit the nation shook Yokohama and Tokyo into splinters. The Tembler triggered a 40-foot tsunami that swept ashore and drowned thousands. As aftershocks and wind-whipped fires tore through Yokohama's streets, Ryan and another man plunged into the wreckage of the city's Grand Hotel and rescued a woman pinned beneath a heavy beam and a tumble of masonry. Later that year, a photographer snapped a photo of Ryan in full braid dress uniform, receiving from President Calvin Coolidge the Medal of Honor for that rescue. With his clear brow, full lips, and strong chin, Ryan had the look of a superhero. He and McVeigh later fought in the same World War II campaign at Kolombangara in the Solomon Islands in 1943. Now the two would meet again with Ryan on his way up and McVeigh, it seemed, on his way down. The Judge Advocate General, Colclough, was busy weighing a litany of potential charges. He presented them to Forrestal. Failure to ensure that the communication department was maintained in proper condition of readiness for emergency transmission. But radioman J.J. Moran's testimony before Van Meter and Coney revealed that the radio rooms were modernized at Mare Island, properly tested, and that McVeigh's radio men were both experienced and proficient. Failure to keep a sufficient lookout for enemy submarines. But testimony by Chief Gunner Harrison and others showed that all watch stations were properly manned. Failure to issue and cause to be affected orders needed to maintain watertight integrity but Indianapolis had been sailing in yoke modified, a cruising condition common to ships of her class. There were other potential charges, but these two conflicted with testimony and documents already in evidence. As Colclough cast about for something that would stick, it was decided that failure to zigzag could easily be proven, since no one disputed that Indianapolis was steering a straight course when she was hit. Zigzagging, of course, had been at McVeigh's discretion, but discretion is not a defense for poor judgment, which King felt McVeigh's had clearly been since the Fifth Fleet flagship now lay at the bottom of the sea.
Colclo also zeroed in on a second charge, failure to order abandoned ship in time. The problem with this charge was that a great deal of evidence to the contrary was provided at the court of inquiry. Hence, to secure a guilty verdict on this charge, he wrote to Forrestal, it must appear that the accused did not use due care in deciding that more time was needed to ascertain the extent of the damage. Ironically, Colclo acknowledged to Forrestal that if McVeigh had immediately ordered abandoned ship instead of waiting as he did to get more information, that could have prompted disciplinary action for giving up the ship too soon. Still, Colclo urged Forrestal to add the second charge, even if it might be disproven. This specification is recommended, however, on the grounds that its use will permit Captain McVeigh to clear himself of criticisms made in the press. Full justification for ordering a trial on Charge 2 springs from the fact that this case is of vital interest not only to the families of those who lost their lives, but also to the public at large. Translation To try McVeigh only on Charge 1, failure to zigzag, would afford neither the families nor the public a chance to hear the story of the sinking of Indianapolis, since McVeigh could simply plead guilty and end the trial before it began. Charging the captain with the second specification would impel him to defend himself. In this way, Americans still demanding answers for this last catastrophic blow of the war would receive them. That much was true, but those answers would be filtered through a forum in which the thrust of inquiry was focused on one man and one man alone. On November 29th, Forrestal adopted Colclaw's recommendation, issued the charges against McVeigh, then had the captain placed under arrest. Military authorities did not place the captain in jail, but the arrest restricted his movements to Washington, D.C. The trial was to take place at Washington Navy Yard, a base once commanded by McVeigh's father, and was set to begin on Monday, December 3rd. That gave McVeigh four days to prepare his defense. The announcement of an unprecedented trial sparked preparations to match. A construction crew worked through the weekend transforming a large room on the top floor of Building 57 into a space fit for a spectacle. Carpenters, electricians, and shipfitters expanded the gallery to accommodate up to 200 spectators. Three weeks before, Forrestal had bemoaned media attention. Now, though, workmen hammered together a special section for the press. McVeigh had been assigned a defense attorney, John Parmalee Cady, a Navy captain. Like Ryan, Cady had been at the academy with McVeigh. His classmates at first considered him a pious, serious young man, hailing as he did from the Puritan confines of Rhode Island. In his plebe year, Katie's go-to rulebook was his Bible. By his second year, though, he had relaxed a bit, and by his third he had become, according to his peers, well encrusted with salt. So salty was he that in the summer of 1921, his exploits during a midshipman's practice cruise became the stuff of legend. In the Norwegian city of Christiania, Katie drank too much pilsner with a fetching blonde Norsk. 
then nursed the resulting hangover by hanging his head out a porthole all the way to Lisbon. After the Naval Academy, Katie took a law degree at George Washington University, graduated in 1932, and promptly failed the bar. He later passed, but by the time of McVeigh's trial, he really no longer even wanted to be a lawyer. Worse, he found himself involuntarily assigned at the last minute to a nationally watched trial. Katie visited Admiral Snyder's office to examine the accumulated record of the supplemental investigation. There he found testimony and evidence numbering more than a thousand pages. He chain-smoked his way through as much of the material as he could, and technically had access to all of the facts. But while the machinery of the prosecution had had months to sift mountains of evidence and build its case, Katie had just 96 hours to wrap his brain around it all and make an argument. On November 30th, the day after Forrestal convened the court-martial, Inspector General Snyder boiled it all down in writing for King, including the chain of intelligence failures that set conditions for the Indy disaster and that had nothing to do with McVeigh. The supplemental investigation had corroborated McVeigh's conclusion that the Philippine Sea was safe, as told to him by Commodore Carter and the Guam Routing Office. The Guam Operations Officer, a commander named Lawrence, stated that he had not received any information from higher echelons and considered Route Petty safe. Intelligence had been received in King's offices, and presumably in Nimitz's and Murray's, that there was a considerable increase in Japanese submarine activity to the west of Guam in the Philippine Sea. It would appear, Snyder wrote, that the increased tempo of submarine activity in this area would have dictated a revision of policies concerning escorts. The hunter-killer anti-submarine operations that commenced shortly after Indy's departure would have appeared to have been sufficient reason for Vice Admiral George Murray to divert Indianapolis, but no action was taken. Snyder reiterated the failure of several commands to follow up on the intercept of Hashimoto's sinking message and to check on Indianapolis's safety. Both Sink Pack Advance, Carter's office, and Commander Mariana's, Murray's office, failed to pass down the ultra-intelligence showing the location of I-58 west of Guam, or, if the information was too highly classified, take action themselves. Snyder's summary then ticked off a list of culprits for the delay in reporting the loss of Indianapolis. He mentioned McCormick, Sancho, and Oldendorf, but focused particularly on Commander Norman Gillette at Leyte. Although his headquarters presumably had been given the intelligence of increased enemy submarine activity in the Philippine Sea, and despite the additional fact that the failure of the Indianapolis to arrive was known to his watchstanders, he took no action until after the survivors were sighted. Among Snyder's conclusions was this. Despite having had to forego refresher training to transport extremely high-priority freight on short notice, testimony of all survivors indicates that the ship was working hard every day to attain top efficiency condition, and while there was a considerable percentage of new personnel, the morale and discipline were excellent, 
which was further evidenced by the splendid behavior of the crew after the explosions until the ship sank. In addition, Snyder wrote, it might be difficult to prove that zigzagging would have improved the security of the ship, given that Carter and Murray also failed to inform McVeigh of the increased tempo of Japanese submarine operations. Snyder's memo, the fruit of his long familiarity with the facts of the case, might have been all Captain Cady needed to successfully defend Captain McVeigh, but the memo was addressed only to Admiral King and its admissions of the culpability of still other admirals would remain a matter of private correspondence. When Katie accompanied McVeigh into the courtroom for the first time on December 3rd, McVeigh appeared pale but composed. Louise McVeigh accompanied her husband, dark-haired, with a broad forehead and quiet, wide-set eyes. She walked beside him up the courtroom aisle, then broke off to take a seat in the newly expanded gallery. McVeigh proceeded through the bar to the defense table, passing Ryan, who acknowledged him with a nod. Seated with Ryan was Lieutenant Carl Bowersfeld, an attorney assigned to assist the prosecution. Instead of the throng of the spectators the Navy had expected, only about 40 people had shown up. Wire service reporters and photographers were setting up in the space reserved for press. There were seven members of the court, and they formed the civilian equivalent of a jury. The president, Rear Admiral Wilder Baker, took his place at the front of the room, flanked by two commodores, Paul S. Thice and William S. Popham, and a convocation of captains, Homer Groskopf, John Sullivan, and Charles Hunt. The seventh man on the court, Captain Heman Redfield, was absent the first day due to a travel delay. McVeigh gazed up at the court, his face taut and set, but he betrayed no emotion. He had many unanswered questions. During questioning at the Inspector General's office, McVeigh had been shocked to learn of the hunter-killer operation led by USS Harris. According to Coney and Van Meter, at least two of his officers had seen a message about a submarine contact somewhere in Indy's vicinity. By instruction, Every message of that nature was routed to him immediately, day or night, with a copy also going to the OOD. And McVeigh was appalled to hear that Commander Janney had, against policy, apparently spoken of this message in the wardroom. Why hadn't Janney, an experienced senior officer, informed him, too? McVeigh couldn't ask him, of course. Janney, his head of navigation, was dead lost at sea just like Moore, Lipsky, and every one of his department heads, save Redmayne and Haynes. It embarrassed McVeigh to still be walking the earth alive, to have been the oldest officer on the ship, and find that no line officer between himself and a reserve lieutenant had survived. While on the raft, he thought it would have been easier to have gone down with his ship. What he dreaded then now lay dead ahead. Beside him in the courtroom, Katie was smoking a cigarette. A current of tension flicked through the air. At the head of the room, each member of the court was duly sworn. Ryan then addressed Katie. Does the accused have any objection to the charges against him? 
Katie stubbed out his cigarette and stood. Yes. The first charge against his client, through negligence suffering a vessel of the Navy to be hazarded, stated only a conclusion while failing to state an offense, Katie said. Negligence implied knowledge that should have been acted on and was not, and there was no proof that McVeigh had such knowledge. Ryan jabbed back. First, it was not necessary that the charge meet the technical precision of a common law indictment. It need only show the court's jurisdiction over the accused and the alleged offense. Second, the charge aligned with similar charges made in court's martial past. Third, McVeigh had been fairly apprised of the offense with which he was being charged. Katie fine-tuned his objection. The negligence charge set out as a fact what was a mere conclusion of the government, that Captain McVeigh was making passage to an area in which enemy submarines might be encountered. There is no proof that the accused had knowledge of this alleged fact, Katie said. To charge Captain McVeigh with negligence of duty, it is necessary to set up the essential elements upon which his duty can be judged. It will be necessary to bring into evidence, Ryan replied whether or not the accused had, or should have had, knowledge that he was proceeding through such an area. In my opinion, it is not necessary to allege that fact in the specification now before the court. The lawyers battled to a draw, and Rear Admiral Baker ordered the courtroom cleared. Louise McVeigh willed her features to remain composed and pleasant, but her eyes betrayed her anxiety as she exited the courtroom with the rest of the banished. After a brief discussion, of which no record was made, the court reconvened. Louise filed in and resumed her seat in the gallery. Baker delivered the court's ruling. Captain Cady's objection is not sustained. The charges and specifications are in due form and technically correct. Ryan had scored his first victory. He addressed Cady again. Is the accused ready for trial? No. The accused does not feel he was provided sufficient time in which to properly prepare a defense, having only received the charges and specifications on November 29th. Katie requested an adjournment of, inexplicably, only one day, and it was granted. The court adjourned, and reporters flocked around McVeigh like pigeons. He neither preened, nor objected, but accommodated them patiently, turning his head as photographers shouted his name. 9. The first thing McVeigh did on Tuesday, December 4th, was answer the two charges against him, not guilty. The court had reconvened on the top floor of Building 57, this time with all seven members present. Louise sat again in the gallery. Journalists crowded the press area, notepads and pens at the ready. The court reporter, a yeoman first class, placed his fingers on the stenotype and keyed three words. The prosecution began. Ryan called as his first witness Lieutenant Joseph J. Waldron, who had been the routing officer at Guam. Waldron told the court that the routing instructions furnished McVeigh by his office included a list of recent enemy contacts. He also testified that the number of contacts was about normal, 
and did not indicate excessive submarine activity. Waldron seemed to be telling the truth as he understood it. But at a secret proceeding taking place on the other side of Washington Navy Yard, another witness seemed determined to tell the whole truth only when pinned to a wall. Captain Oliver F. Naquin was under interrogation in Admiral Snyder's office, where the supplemental investigation was still underway. By the time Ryan called Waldron to the stand in Building 57, Naquin had been dodging and weaving for an hour. The survivor of two sunken vessels, he was being questioned by Captain Coney, the former skipper of MacArthur's flagship. It was a clash of iron-willed men. Coney first established that Naquin had responsibility at Guam for safe passage of combat vessels, as well as for diverting ships in peril. He then asked Naquin what intelligence information he received as surface operations officer. Naquin first hedged, saying he had access to the normal contact reports and general intelligence information. Coney, were you given all information available in this regard, regardless of its classification, secret, confidential, top secret, ultra secret, as well as just ordinary information? Naquin, yes. Coney, what use did you make of this information? Naquin, as I have just stated, it was placed on my board to keep me apprised of the situation, except ultra-information, which I kept in the highest of confidence. Coney, to whom did you disseminate this information? Naquin, I didn't disseminate it to anyone. He didn't see any need to pass this information along since others were also receiving it, he said. Coney, did you know that the USS Underhill was sunk by an enemy submarine? Naquin, I believe she was presumed to have been. I don't know how she was sunk. Coney, did you see a dispatch which indicated the Underhill had been sunk by a submarine and possibly special equipment had been used in the sinking? Naquin, I don't recall that dispatch. Coney, I show you Sink Pack Advanced Headquarters Blue Summary 260451 of July 1945, which is a detailed account of the sinking of the Underhill and her operations at that time. Have you seen that dispatch? Naquin, yes, I have seen this one. Coney, from these dispatches, then, were you cognizant that there was an enemy submarine operating in the Western Pacific also? though it may not have been on route petty? Naquin. Yes, this sinking, however, was not in the Marianas. Coney. When you received this information of the sinking of Underhill, did you pass it on to anyone? Naquin. I do not recall. Coney. Were you informed that four enemy submarines were, during the month of July, operating on offensive missions in the general area of the Western Pacific, bounded by Guam, Palau, the Philippines, and the southern islands of the Japanese group? Naquin. Yes, I had such information. Coney. One of those submarines was operating in the near vicinity of Route Petty. Did you know anything about that? Naquin. As a result of these reports, we had assigned to us a hunter-killer carrier and four destroyers. But whether or not it was assigned prior to the sinking, I do not recall. Was one of these vessels USS Harris? Coney wanted to know. 
I do not recall, Naquin said. Coney then asked whether he had passed the ultra information about the four enemy subs to any ship leaving Guam. I don't recall that I had any occasion to pass that particular information. What about USS Harris hunting down a submarine near Route Petty? Did Naquin know anything about that? Naquin. I don't recall that incident. Coney. I have here Sink Pack Advance Headquarters Blue Summary of the 28th of July, which is addressed to all commands, which reported that anti-submarine operations are in progress at 10 degrees 26 minutes north, 131 degrees 10 minutes east, after sighting and sonar contact. Would you have seen this? Naquin. Yes, I would have seen this. Coney. Would you have plotted this position on your chart? Naquin. Yes, I would have done so. Here, Coney began a merciless sifting of Naquin's inaction. If he knew Harris was hunting a submarine, a sub that had been both seen and heard along Route Petty just 90 miles ahead of Indianapolis's route extended, would this not have prompted him to consider diverting her? Naquin. No, I think not as long as there was an ASW vessel working on it at the time, in contact with it. Coney, did you pass this information on to the Indianapolis on one of her intercept schedules? Naquin, no, I did not. Naquin argued that Indianapolis would normally receive such information, and because of that, he had no responsibility to pass it along. Coney, was this enemy activity during the month of July increasing or on the decline from normal enemy activity in that area? Naquin. I don't know that you can classify one sinking as increasing or decreasing. It was an isolated incident. It was unclear whether Coney viewed this answer as genuine, cagey, or obtuse. In any case, Coney spelled it out for him as though rehearsing the alphabet for a child. Coney, while there was only one sinking, you knew there were four submarines operating in the area. Is that more submarines than are normally operating there, or less, or approximately the same number? Naquin, I would say that that would be more than average. Coney, did you give that fact any special consideration in connection with the sailing of the Indianapolis? Naquin, I did not as I did not sail the Indianapolis. Coney. But immediately upon her sailing, she was then your responsibility. Did you give that fact any consideration, insofar as your responsibility for her was concerned? Naquin's answer seemed cavalier. I did not feel that the reported activity jeopardized the safety of her sailing. A great deal of stuff reported never materialized. 10. Back at Building 57, the first survivor to testify was Lieutenant Charles Bright McKissick, who had been in the water with Ed Harrell. McKissick had first reunited with his wife back home in McKinney, Texas, and now was stationed at Washington Navy Yard. To testify, he'd only had to walk across the base. McKissick told the court how, as officer of the deck on watch, from 6 to 8 p.m., 
He had ceased zigzagging at the end of evening twilight per instructions from Captain McVeigh. He then gave a dramatic account of being thrown from his bunk by a violent explosion, escaping from below decks, and as the ship keeled over, ordering all men in his vicinity to abandon ship. Ryan asked, During the time you were on watch that day, did you know that the ship was pursuing a course that would pass through an area in which enemy submarines might be encountered? Objection, Katie said from the defense table. Calls for a conclusion on the part of the witness. Ryan rephrased his question, and Katie withdrew his objection. Yes, sir, McKissick said. I knew that the ship eventually would pass through an area in which the ship might encounter submarines. I would like to clarify that statement by saying that it was. I had seen a dispatch which indicated that there was a possible enemy submarine contact somewhere in the radius of 500 miles of our position. Where did you see that dispatch? Ryan asked. The dispatch was on a communications board that was kept on the bridge for the officer of the deck to review before going on watch. It was kept in a metal folder there. It was kept on the bridge at all times. The lieutenant continued, saying the position of the possible submarine was 75 to 100 miles south and 200 miles ahead. It was the approximate position of the Harris Chase. On further questioning, McKissick revealed that when he stopped by CIC, the Combat Information Center, before taking the OOD watch, the plotting chart contained no indication of enemy subs. This meant that though someone had posted the hunter-killer message in the metal folder on the bridge, either it had not been routed through the Indies Combat Information Center, which tracked enemy contacts, or personnel there had failed to plot the location of the submarine chase. McKissick also testified about the visibility on his watch. At times I could see fairly well on deck, and other times it was almost totally black. Ryan then asked again about the subcontact on the dispatch board. What was its distance from the ship's approximate location during the time McKissick was on watch? McKissick, the closest the ship would come to that contact would be 70 to 100 miles. Ryan, and having made that estimate, did you take into consideration a submarine on the surface at night proceeding on an opposite course from that steered by Indianapolis? McKissick said he and the off-going officer of the deck did one better. They assumed that the sub mentioned in the dispatch might actually target their ship and calculated how close it could get. At that, Katie rose to cross-examine McKissick. He zeroed right in on the charge that his client, McVeigh, had hazarded his vessel by failing to zigzag. Katie, did you question the orders from the captain to stop zigzagging at the time they were given to you? McKissick, no, sir. I did not question the orders of the captain. I didn't feel it was anything unusual. Katie, what was the visibility at that time? McKissick, well, the visibility at that time, of course, there were heavy clouds ahead and it was partly cloudy overhead. At the time I came off watch, there was no moon. The visibility was very poor. It was a very dark night. Katie, was it customary on the ship to cease zigzagging after evening twilight? 
McKissick. Yes, sir. It was customary, as I recall. We did it all during the war at the end of evening twilight and if the visibility was poor. It was customary, as I recall, to cease zigzagging and resume base course. Katie then sought to establish that McVeigh had clear rules by which his OOD should operate. Katie, can you testify to whether or not the standing orders contained any instructions to the officer of the deck to notify the captain in case of any change in weather conditions, visibility, or so on? McKissick, I can testify definitely that those instructions were in the standing night orders that if there was any change in the condition of the sea or the weather or any tactical change, it must be reported to the captain immediately. Katie, was it your habit to do so? McKissick, I hadn't been standing watches for too long, about six to nine months. Consequently, I did my best to abide by every rule, and I had no hesitation, of course, in notifying the captain of such events, even in daylight, during rain squalls, or anything. It was my practice to notify the captain of such occurrences. Katie returned to the subject of the message board submarine. Katie, at the time when you saw this dispatch that you spoke of, did it cause you any concern as to the safety of the ship? McKissick, no, sir. I considered the position of the submarine and the position of the ship to be a great enough distance at which, as to cause no alarm. We received dispatches all through the war much to the same effect. When any of them were that far away, we didn't feel unduly alarmed at such a report. Other survivors, including Lieutenant Richard Redmayne, the engineering officer, gave the court similar assessments. The night was dark, visibility poor, information about submarine contacts routine, and zigzagging did not seem necessary. Then, Dr. Lewis Haynes was called to the stand. When the torpedoes hit, Haynes said, he was blown out of his bunk and onto his desk. The second explosion filled his room with flame. I turned to leave my room and got started toward the passageway when there was a large blast down the passageway. I ducked back into my room and felt the flames swish around me. I held my life jacket in front of my face. The room was on fire, Haynes said, and his forehead was burned. He knew he had to get out. But when he looked for escape, via a ladder, a passageway, and other rooms, there was fire everywhere he turned. I got in the wardroom. It was filled with a red haze, and the heat was intense. I could feel myself being overcome, probably from the gases, and about halfway across the wardroom, I did fall to the deck. I fell on my outstretched hands, and the deck at that point was very hot, and my hands sizzled, and it was very severely burned. The pain shocked me to my feet. In the press area, reporters scribbled furiously. This was the most dramatic testimony of the trial so far. Haynes told the court that he crossed the wardroom, feeling his way along the bulkhead, then collapsed into an easy chair and relaxed. I thought that that was the end, and it was going to be easy. And then someone who was standing over me said, My God, I am fainting, and fell on me. That scared Haynes to his feet again. He found an open porthole, poked his head through, and vacuumed fresh air into his lungs.
When his head cleared, Haynes was able to climb to the battle dressing station in the port hangar, where rows of wounded men had already collected. That was when he joined the chief pharmacist's mate and began administering morphine. When the time came to abandon ship, Haynes said the water below him was black with men. Ryan, about how many men were originally in the group of survivors of which you were a part? Haynes, I would say that the group of swimmers was made up of between three and four hundred men. Ryan, about how many of that group were rescued? Haynes, I believe the Cecil Doyle picked up ninety-three out of that group. Ryan, what happened to the remainder? Haynes, well, more than twenty died the first night from burns and injuries. Objection. It was Katie. This line of questioning and the testimony is not connected with the issues in the case. An argument ensued, and Rear Admiral Baker again cleared the court. When the court was reconvened, Baker announced that any testimony regarding deaths in the water following abandoned ship should be avoided unless it was directly connected with any possible inefficiency of the accused. The ruling would prove ironic. Katie feared testimony about the gruesome days in the water would work against McVeigh. He had won the point, but at a cost he had perhaps not fully calculated. Haynes, having survived in one of the largest swimmer groups, could have testified to the horrors suffered by the crew after McVeigh's alleged hazarding of the ship, tragedy and drama that would have been of keen interest to newspaper editors, whose columnists had already assigned the blame for the epic death toll to the Navy and not to McVeigh. Instead, Newspapers the following day ran headlines about Haynes's conversation with Commander Janney in the wardroom, as well as Redmayne's testimony that Janney had briefed the watch officers about an enemy submarine ahead. Officers standing night watch told sub in vicinity, wrote the evening press of Muncie, Indiana. Indianapolis night watch had been warned of prowling sub, wrote the Green Bay, Wisconsin, Press-Gazette. Officers of Lost Cruiser were told about Nip Sub, wrote the leader of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. A couple of witnesses after Haynes, Ensign John Woolston took the stand. Woolston had spent much of his time in Guam after the sinking, writing the official war damage report for Indianapolis. When called to the court-martial, Wollston thought he would be testifying as a survivor, and was surprised to find himself transformed, mid-testimony, from eyewitness to expert witness. Ryan elicited from Wollston a raft of technical details, such as Indy's cruising condition, repair party status, and damage to the ship. Like McKissick and the bugler Donald Mack, who testified before him, Wollston told the court that he heard the order to abandon ship. There was plenty of time to abandon ship in an orderly fashion after the word was passed, with little danger to the men, Wollston said. However, because of the lack of power communications within the ship, it was difficult for the men far aft to hear the word. 11. On December 5th, Captain Ryan continued his prosecution. 
calling a procession of witnesses to the stand. Indianapolis Supply Officer John Reed, a lieutenant commander, gave a dramatic account of his last moments on the fantail. There seemed to be at least 800 men clinging to the lifeline. The ship was listing rapidly, and the men were attempting to go over the side. Reed tried to stop them. Finally, it seemed impossible to do anything but go over the side, so the men did, and I fell back against a turret, and finally the ship just went down from under me. Reed, the senior officer on the fantail, said he did not tell the men there to abandon ship, because for the first several minutes he did not think India would sink. Other officers and chiefs also testified that they thought at first that the ship might remain afloat. This buttressed McVeigh's not-guilty plea to charge two, failure to order abandoned ship in time, which, of course, the prosecution had expected. Reed also testified to the visibility as seen from the fantail, broken clouds, which created a hazy effect when clouds were over the moon. Ryan, when the clouds were not over the moon, what was the condition? Reed, that was very rare, but at such times it was bright. The question of visibility was key, since naval instructions required skippers to zigzag in times of good visibility or moonlight. Ryan attempted to elicit testimony in support of Charge 1, that McVeigh had hazarded his vessel by failing to zigzag, while Katie tried to counter it. Katie, did you actually see the bright exposed surface of the moon? Read. At intervals, yes. Katie, at intervals? Read. Rarely. Ensign Ross Rogers, Jr., a junior division officer, said he didn't notice either the moon or visibility when he came on watch just before midnight at Sky Amidships, a high platform near the center of the ship. He noticed only that it was dark. Ryan, did you notice it at any subsequent time? Rogers, later on, sir, I was ordered to watch the sea for enemy submarines, and I could see the reflection of the moon in the water. Ryan, was this before you finally left the ship? Rogers, yes, sir, it was. Chief Gunner Cecil Harrison said it was a dark night, with a moderate ground swell and a light wind. Ryan, how far would you estimate that you could see, in thousands of yards from your height? Harrison, about 3,000 yards. Ryan, what could you see at that distance? Harrison, it would be limited. It would have to be a large vessel, the size of a destroyer. Nothing that was low in the water, I do not believe, could have been seen. Durward Horner, a warrant gunner, told Katie under cross-examination that even after the ship was hit, it was so dark topside that he couldn't recognize his own gunnery officer, Commander Lipsky. I think I knew him by shape more than anything else. Horner said he never saw the moon. Then Ensign Donald Blum took the stand. Ryan, did anything unusual occur during the night of 29th to 30th July, 1945? If so, what was it? Blum, the ship sank. At Blum's blunt summary, 
A wave of soft laughter rolled through the gallery and the press. Blum then testified that he had been on watch at the sky amidships platform and could see the fantail and the forward stack with no trouble. I could distinguish people walking around on the fantail. And so it went, with testimony on charge one swinging like a pendulum between McVeigh and his accusers. Some men were called periods of luminous moonlight and lucid visibility. One sailor even recalled seeing the horizon, while others remembered a coal-black night with no moon at all. On charge two, testimony regarding the abandoned ship order came down heavily in McVeigh's favor, as Admiral Colclough had predicted. By day's end, on Thursday, December 6th, Ryan had called 22 witnesses, some of whom told tales of heroism and narrow escape. But no individual testimony was as chilling as the collective calculus of death that had begun with John Wollston. Question. Are you the senior surviving officer in damage control? Answer. Yes, sir. I am the only surviving officer. Radioman J.J. Moran. Question. Are there any surviving officer personnel of the communications department? Answer. No, sir. There are none. Seaman First Class Raymond Jerkowitz. Question. How many enlisted personnel were in CIC at that time? Answer. Three. With me. Question. How many of that number, three enlisted and two officer personnel, survived? Answer. I did. Question. Will you repeat that, please? Answer. Just me. Just myself. Witness after witness underscored this grim fact. Of the 1,195 souls aboard Indianapolis, three of every four men died.